Yeah, well, I mean, I'm currently on the front page of Breitbart, so I've made it um, because I said that my abortion was the best decision I've ever made. Really cutting bangs was the best decision I've ever made. <laughs> After that, it was my abortion because um, this has really been my trademark look. Um, but <laughs> after that, it was the abortion I had. You are listening to The Conversation with Amanda Decadney and this is my very first podcast with the awesome Jamila Jamil. She's an actress, she's a journalist, and most significantly, she is the real deal, and she tells it like it is, and that is my favorite type of person, because I tend to be quite like that too, in case you didn't know. On this episode, we talked about a lot of things, but some of the things that stuck out to me the most were how she overcame violence and sexual assault, as well as substantial childhood trauma. She offers valuable tools and insights for anyone who has also dealt with the unthinkable and does it with her own wicked sense of humor. How's your day been going? My day's fine. Yeah, it's, uh, I've, I've been very, very busy of late, but there's also no crying on the yacht. So right. I'm trying to just be be very grateful for everything that's happening. It's also the first time in my life I've ever felt intellectually stimulated by my really? by my career. Yeah. Why no, is that? No disrespect to formal jobs, although I've, I've kind of now done it and I've disrespected them. Um, but I just was uh, underestimated because of my aesthetic and also my gender and my race. Uh, and so never Funny really given Funny how that happens. Any, I know. Gosh, um, that old chestnut. Yeah. And so because of that, people have never assumed that I would have anything to say or be smart or funny or uh, of much worth beyond my tits. Oh, yeah. Well, I, yeah, I know what you're talking about, actually. Mm. Um I too have had that experience of people not allowing you to be more than just your physical mm -hmm. attributes. In my case, it was my tits and my ass uh, that just were very distracting Nobody to everyone. Nobody has ever been interested in my ass. Well, so yeah. I have that. Okay, well, I, there you go. You've got one up on me on that. Yeah. Um, but I can tell you that, yes, also people being distracted by that. It is so nice, isn't it, to be able to. Um, to explore and mm -hmm. to share the aspects of yourself that have always been there, right? But just no one really cared about. Yeah, it's why I left TV and um, went to radio was because I wanted to prove that I could still be entertaining without being seen in a short skirt. What was amazing is that when I got the job on radio, everyone was like, you only got that job because of your looks. It's like, they can't fucking see me. <laughs> What would be the point in giving me this job for my looks? Well, that's British press, isn't it, though? Yeah. They will always find a way to bring it back to the way you look yeah. and, and, you know, point out the ways that they think that you're just not substantial enough. Yeah. Uh, so I've been aware of you for a while just because you're an awesome woman who is smart and informed and engaged and... A bit mad on social funny. media. Funny. Well, I don't consider it that, actually, mm -hmm. because I have a lot of respect and I admire women who speak their truth mm -hmm. and who are not afraid of other people's responses to it. And that I see you embracing and I have, you know, as we would say in England, mad respect for that. Thank you. I do. Thank so you. thank you for coming here today. No, it's great. I've uh, I've really enjoyed the journey of becoming a scary woman. <laughs> and that is something that I now guess I am perceived to be. Men are, men are very scared of meeting me because they assume I'm going to be very intimidating. And I am a bit intimidating. And I used to think that would be an embarrassing thing to be. And I used to try and show guys how like, I'm not the other girls and I'm like, I'm chilled and I'm laid back. I was a dick for doing that. Um, I now very much so embrace the side of me that is scary and powerful. 
and I uh, am not afraid of uh, people noticing that I'm not difficult to work with, I'm not rude or disrespectful. I just ask for what I deserve now in a way that I never did before and I kind of enjoy people being a bit intimidated by me. It's t- it's time as a woman of colour to have that response rather than people expect you to just serve them in every different way. For you growing up in the UK, were you aware of the fact that your skin colour differentiated you from everybody else? Yeah, I was. I was racism was the the main part of my bullying. I was called a a dirty packy all of the time. I still get called a stinking monkey on Twitter at least once a week and people bring up the word curry around my smell. Uh, That's bizarre, truly. Um, Also, curry's a great smell, so that's not a I love curry. It's a wonderful smell. If I was going to bring out my own fragrance, it'd be a fucking Rogan Josh. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) But um, (laughs) uh, I uh, was beaten uh, beaten up so badly all the time. I had teeth knocked out. I um, had my back very badly damaged by girls at school because they didn't like want me in their school because of my race and their parents were very disgusted by the ethnicity of my family. And so uh, Islamophobia has always been very prevalent in the United Kingdom. And also it's massively because of the way that we're portrayed in the media. Like even in, you know, we never got to play the love interest pre-Priyanka we never really got to play the love interest or the detective or the hero or the sex symbol. We were always like, you know, the silly Billy man has got a very loud voice and we're talking very big stereotype and always very stupid and overreacting. That was the only kind of way in which we'd be played. And often, even when we were portrayed, we were being played by white people with brown makeup on their skin who were then making fun of our culture. So, you know, that level of erasure slash complete mass ridicule throughout an industry that still kind of going on up until now um i'm part of the new generation where we're allowed to just asians are allowed to be people um and so that made people just look down on me instinctively because there was no portrayal of my people as anything other than either terrorists or just buffoons did you find that what did you go to public school or private school in the uk um, I went to a special needs school until I was 12 because I was deaf. And then I went to a private secondary school on a full scholarship. And were you born deaf? Uh, I, I don't know if I was born deaf or not. I know they found out when I was like one. I think until then, everyone had thought I was just a very chill baby. Um, and <laughs> then they God, realized, a chill one. Yeah. Uh, and uh, my reaction on aeroplanes was something out of the exorcist. And so... It was clear that something was wrong with my ears and um, I was deaf on and off until I was 12 years old and now I have kind of 65% hearing. You said you were deaf. Mm -hmm. You had multiple surgeries. Yeah, seven um, seven Gosh. operations, um, which before the age of 12 is a lot. Yeah, it a is. Lot of big I have 12-year-old twins and I can't imagine what that would be like to have yeah. so many surgeries for a young kid. And each one, you can end up with no hearing ever again if it goes wrong. And so the big one that I had when I was 12 was where my eardrum was sort of replaced. And that was kind of like, either I'll wake up and never, ever, ever even be able to hear with a hearing aid or this will work. And it was a brand new type of surgery and it worked. It was a guy called Dr. Valentine, whose name I just remember because he gave me back my hearing. How can you forget that? (laughs) I know. So you, I read somewhere that you said that you had a really rough first 20 years of your life. Mm -hmm. Did you actually say that? Yeah. Why do you feel like that? Um, Because it felt like... I was in Jumanji or something like that. Uh, I felt like what does I, that mean? As in, I felt like I was always running for my life. Um, I grew up in a, a fairly abusive family situation, and um, I also 
was very badly bullied at secondary school. I was very sick um, and surrounded by people with very severe mental health problems. And I was sort of the only real, like really kind of lucid member of my family. And so I was caring for a lot of people, uh, which was very, very stressful as a child. You develop like a... um, my adrenals have kind of been exhausted out, since yeah. I could, since I can remember. Well, you're in fight or flight. Yeah, and you can really only ever withdraw from your adrenal reserve. You can never deposit. So I've just been kind of running on empty for a very long time. I had adrenal fatigue and I it is a yeah. real beast to rehabilitate that. Yeah, and I've just been in panic. Like, you know, such terrible things happened to me in the dark as a child that I couldn't sleep in the dark till I was 28 years old. I was also molested a lot as a child and then raped again as a 22 year old like it's just it's been a lot and then on top of that I'm just a woman in the world which is super stressful growing up in in with no money and no sense of like a way out so I was very very depressed anxious suicidal 20 something even when I was famous and being like kind of celebrated as, as an it girl I just wanted to die and so, so you and I have of, all this in common yeah <laughs> and so it's uh I think I think we're terribly ununique in that I think a lot yeah. of people just don't talk about it and that's kind of why I talk about it so relentlessly is because I'm trying to remove the stigma I do too it's also why I talk about yeah. all the, the my own experiences with sexual assault and you know violence rape addiction depression yeah all of the same stuff because it it so many of us have these experiences. Mm-hmm. It's it, like you said, it's not uncommon. In fact, it is t- all too commonplace. I dare say I'm textbook. Yeah, I am <laughs> like, too. I am know. too. Yeah. And it, there's something kind of quite. I find it quite relieving once I knew that. I was like, oh, lots of other people have had this experience mm-hmm. too. On the one hand, it, it's so concerning to me that this continues and that there are so many people who still have these experiences. That's the genius of to run a book. Yeah. Is just hashtag me too, just yeah. creating a me too movement. What what an inspired idea to get everyone to come out and tell this story, which made all of us feel so much less alone, which helped all of us get mad together and fight back. And we have the phenomenal women's movement that we have today mm. because of the power of the collective. Yeah. But when you talked about um, having trauma in your childhood, do you think your deafness had anything to do with you wanting to tune out the world? Perhaps there is a part of me that wanted to tune out in the world, but I... I I'm happy that I had those years of deafness because what they did for me is that they turned me into a mega observant person because when you lose one sense, your other senses really do become much more powerful. And it taught me how to read people without having to listen to the words that they speak, which are so rarely representative of what they really intend. And so I was able to just sort of like, I'm like an MRI for people now. And I wouldn't have that skill had I not been deaf. It's so fascinating because... I think a lot about I grew up in an alcoholic home and I learned mm-hmm. to read people's footsteps. Like even before the key went in the door, I could read the tone of some of the way they walked up the steps. Like, oh, do I need to hide or is this going to be OK? Mm-hmm. And, you know, for my experience, at least all the things that people have considered to be like terrible atrocities or awful things that happened to me. They actually taught me phenomenal skill sets that as a yeah. grown up. I've been able to turn those into wonderful assets. Yeah. If they if you can get the recovery behind it, right? Yeah, although I could stand to be like a little bit less worldly. I could have had a I could have done with a bit less abuse. <laughs> a little well, bit less yeah. rape. Um uh and but but that's kind of why I guess you and I do what we do now, which is a way of recycling all of that and turning it into something helpful and good so that it didn't just happen for no reason. And we're lucky that we have the privilege and the platform to be able to turn it into something positive and so many people don't. So I guess that's kind of why what I'm aiming to do is is be more preventative in the fact that I can help people 
perhaps navigate themselves away from terrible situations if at all possible because they're not going to have my outlet or my access to expensive therapy or my access to a healthy environment or a nice place to live or a safe place to live. And so I'm just trying to do my best to to not just talk about what's happened to me but help you understand the signs that something's about to happen and start talking about eating disorders, start talking about consent, start talking about family relations. Like It's very, very, very important that we do our best with our privilege to stop this from happening to other people. Yeah, I agree. It's not just about the the problem, it's also about the solution, mm-hmm. right? And you're talking about the intermediate phase, which is being aware of what, it, what you can do that's preventative mm-hmm. or indeed signs that something is going down a certain path. But ultimately, what I've also found challenging is, like you said, if you're privileged enough to be able to afford therapy and afford the resources that cost money, um, the only thing I found that ha- is free, that ha- works phenomenally, is 12-step recovery, yes. which is free for anyone and everyone. Even if you don't have a dollar to donate, which is their suggested donation, you can go. And I've seen the most incredible healing in so many different areas, mm-hmm. um, and that is free. But other than that, I'm trying to think of, yes, books and sharing information the way we are on a podcast. Yeah, I try and tell people what my therapist has told me so I can just use that without having to pay for yeah, my therapist. The right? uh, best thing that she ever said to me was I came to her and I was complaining about everything bad that was happening to me. Uh, and this person's doing this and this person's taking advantage of me and this person's using me. And she was just like, well, darling, a doormat's already lying down before people wipe their feet all over it. And I was just like, Bam, beautiful. That line changed the rest of my life. Yeah. Because I I realised that there, it's it's actually quite empowering to realise that sometimes you are slightly complicit in your own pain. It's not so well, much always, victim shaming. There's, there's always, always a piece of you Not that's... always. Sometimes there isn't. Like, Unless you're a child. Yeah. Or, when you're or a child. like kidnapped and made a sex yes, slave or something true. like that. Yes. But, um, but I think that in many situations in life, even the most grotesque ones, sometimes there is something that you can do differently the next time. Uh, I remember when I was raped when I was 22, uh, I'd gone home with someone that I didn't know very well. And it's not that you should ever feel ashamed of that. Obviously, the onus is on the person, the raper, <laughs> the rapist, uh, to not rape. Uh, or attack but unfortunately we have to also account for mental health issues or trauma that's happened in their life you don't know what story you're going home with you're not just going home with flesh and blood you're going home with a story and if you don't know that person's story you are endangering yourself by being in a house that is not yours or sometimes it happens in your own house for god's sake um and so i remember walking out the next day and just thinking about what i could have done differently which was just like you know what Get to know, as someone who came from a family full of very, very mentally ill people, I understand that that is something that people sometimes just don't have control over. Not to victim shame myself, but I was like, okay, from now on, I'm going to really get to know people before I walk into a private space with them. And that made me feel better. Now, there are some women who just get attacked randomly in a park or something like that. That's not on them. But with me, it just, it was empowering to realize that I had made a call. That was not a great, it wasn't actually a logical call. I wouldn't tell my daughter maybe to do that. What you're talking about is being able to be aware of circumstances and being in enough control of yourself. And not to be too utopic, like with everything like, well, you know, we shouldn't, so therefore we won't. Right, but there's also being able to use information and make a different choice the next time is the ultimate goal. And yet there is often so many... Um, circumstances within 
you know, I can speak for myself, within myself, where one of the most painful things has been to be aware of making a different choice the next time, but being completely unable to do it and still putting yourself in dangerous situations. It's doomed to repeat your own mistakes. Yeah, yeah, and that, I don't, for me, has been one of the most painful things because you have the awareness of making a different choice, mm-hmm. but because of your own insecurities or your own need to be validated or seen or desired or whatever the thing is, mm-hmm. you still put yourself at risk. That's why I found EMDR therapy very, uh, helpful because what it did is it attacked the cause of my trigger and therefore I was no longer being controlled by a trigger of a feeling that was attached to a thought or memory. EMDR therapy is eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. The thing that I would recommend you stop buying anti-aging cream and cellulite cream and stretch mark cream which doesn't fucking do anything anyway uh, and start saving up for that type of therapy because it's specifically trauma based but it also therefore works on all the things that trauma causes and trauma isn't always just like being uh, attacked in the street. Trauma can happen in these microaggressions that are and everyone's trauma is valid and there's no like there is a scale of trauma but it doesn't mean that someone's trauma cancels yours out and so I recommend EMDR therapy for just being able to to remove the homework because sometimes talk therapy while incredibly um, valuable means that you're having to do the work CBT means you're having to do the work you're having to catch your inner monologue cognitive and then, behavioral therapy yeah cognitive behavioral therapy or um, you're having to catch your internal monologue and then wrestle with it and then make the effort to not do the thing that you instinctively want to do whereas what EMDR did for me and for all of my friends and my boyfriend is just remove the instinct to hurt yourself or other people yeah, I think, I mean, I've done EMDR mm-hmm. as well. And just to to explain a little bit for people that don't mm-hmm. understand how it works, it is often a, a, pa- a light pattern mm-hmm. um, and or tapping. It's a repetitive pattern that accesses a subconscious part of your mind, your psyche, and taps into trauma that maybe isn't in your conscious mind, but is embedded in you and is still informing your your decisions, whether Mm -hmm. conscious or unconscious. And so it's a super powerful way and really, really fast. I found it works so fast. So fast. It was extraordinary. I was in and out in 16 sessions, like considering my childhood, (laughs) it was insane. Yeah, Yeah. I I had a similar experience. Um, and and it is it is phenomenally powerful um, to to actually like release those those imprints, if you will, so that you don't you're not triggered in the same way. Do, do you remember the the after those sessions when you were aware that you didn't have those trigger patterns anymore? Yeah, the most interesting one was the second time I went because I mean you're just watching this light go back and forth. The first time I went, I felt nothing. And I just felt like a dog watching this light go back and forth. I felt really just bored and annoyed. And then I went again and I felt the same way. And I, at the end of the session, told her I wouldn't be returning. And I went home that night and I went to sleep. And I woke up the next morning and realised then that I had gone home for the first time in my life and turned the lights off before I went to sleep without thinking about it, hadn't triple locked my door and hadn't checked under every single um, bed and in every single cupboard, which was my routine for 28 years. That's tiring. Hadn't, uh, yeah, it's exhausting. Um, and, you know, when you bring home someone new, it looks weird. It's yeah. a little bit unsettling. Don't mind me. I'm just going to check <laughs> under the check bed under three the bed. times. Yes, I am 30, um, but I'm just going <laughs> to make sure there isn't Hang a on monster a under the bed. Hang on a minute. Can you just hold on a second? Yeah. I know we're in the middle of something, but I need to check again. Yeah. Yeah, I understand and so, that. But I, I just, it was, it, it stole my trauma from me like a thief in the night. It just fell off me like a, an onion peel or something. When you started to get into a relationship Mm -hmm. and with your 
trauma as a child mm-hmm. and with everything that you've worked through, how what was that process like for you? Because I know for me, it was extremely difficult to overcome some of the things that could only come up when I was in a relationship. It's right. like, I was like, I'm doing good. I've healed a lot of things. And then you get into like a real love, sexual, intimate relationship. Yeah. And that is the place that only those things can come up for you to process. They say that if you really want to get to know yourself, get into a relationship. So true. Uh, it's very true. I um, My first relationship was with my best friend and I was 21. So I, I had someone who knew my whole life and had kind of spent a lot of time with me who was very, very, very caring and careful and was literally a carer uh, as his career. And wow. so slash drug dealer um <laughs> that's an interesting yeah, combo but you know there's care in that too it was weed uh <laughs> but um he uh he was wonderful to me and with me and just very much so let me take my time and I didn't have my first kiss till I was 21 because of all my trauma as a child and I uh he from when we got together and had our first kiss it was six months before I lost my virginity to him so just very patient and just very kind I'm so pleased you had that experience yeah 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 yeah. and even though we broke up um I will remember him forever as probably the healthiest possible uh relationship I could have had in that scenario being so young and inexperienced that's beautiful that you and but that you sought that yeah second guy was completely abusive and was exactly like my abusers when I was younger right uh straight after this wonderful angel um and then after that I made a concerted effort to register my triggers and not date people who were like my abusers and look for the signs and Uh, you were able to do that I was able to do that yeah I've always been very analytical um I think probably because of my deafness meant I spent so much time alone analyzing everything that it it turned me into and also like I experienced such severe trauma as a child that I uh I think something happened to my neurochemistry Mm -hmm. in that my uh my feelings very rarely actually go to the emotional part of my brain they sort of bypass the emotional part of my brain and go straight to the logical so I'm like uh r2d2 i guess survival um, yeah and so I, you know, I often don't yeah and it, it you know i didn't really feel my first feeling until i was about 29 um i just sort of copied other people's feelings a bit like et uh, and just how tried does to, that work for you in friendships and or relationships it's very difficult and now that i actually like f- am more of an authentic person because i feel safe to be my friends have or maybe not that, authentic maybe you're just integrated yeah, I don't know, but I think I am authentic in the fact that I'm not, I don't have a guard up anymore. I'm actually being able to talk to people on a real level. I'm able to talk to you right now on a real level. Uh, I couldn't do that. I was wildly performative and insincere until really the last couple of years, uh, which I have some regrets over, but I also understand that that was my coping mechanism and really fr- fucking frankly whatever gets you through the day. Thank God for that. What has been the thing about yourself that has surprised you the most? That you didn't know, that you were like, oh, Jamila, I did not know this about you. My uh, survival skills. I've been really stunned by my own survival skills. And that might sound like I'm massively bigging myself up, but maybe I am. And I've survived a hell of a lot. Mm-hmm. And I, uh, everything that I think I won't be able to make it through, I always do. And I think that women have a huge capacity for doubting our own survival skills and not registering that there's a reason that we are the gender that got chosen to push um, people out of, out, our, of our vaginas. out of our vaginas. Uh, and obviously there are also trans men who can yes, do that same thing. Are. It's just that our gender in particular and for everyone female identifying, uh, you are in a situation where you are, you are taught that you are weak 
from the minute you are born. You are taught that you don't have... Uh, we've been deliberately misinformed so that we... Because I think men back in the day recognised our terrifying power and the fact that we were growing more and more independent and we were, you know, eventually when we had access to education, when they allowed us access to educa- education. And not all women have access to education, uh, Still sadly, in the world yeah. right now. And there's a reason for that because they're afraid of what we'll do with that knowledge. They are afraid of us. It's very clear that the reason that they suppress us is out of fear. Um, and... Uh, and you know now we have postmates so we don't even need them to go out and forage for us we can just order it on a damn app so really i think there's a there's a tremendous insecurity in a lot of men not all men but a lot of men that is that we don't need them beyond their seed but but we do need them because they're great friends or they can be great lovers or companions you know or colleagues they they are completely Allies. of worth yeah they are they are of worth for their humanity not for what they can just do for us not for what we can uh, get from commodify them. but unfortunately with. they haven't valued themselves mm-hmm. in that regard exactly and so there is a whole shift now that women are in the workplace and often women are the more more frequently than ever before women are the main breadwinners in families yeah. and so men are having to value themselves for something other than being the provider financially and putting food on the table and i think they're actually struggling with a new paradigm which is oh how do i value my contribution as yeah. a partner as an ally as someone in conversation as a lover as a co-parent as a co-partner these are all things that men haven't had to put focus on. Well, also they've been given too much expectation of power and ability and we've been given none. So we're right. both hurt by these two dynamics. Yes. Like sometimes they don't know what to do yeah. or they can't do something or they have a low pain tolerance. You know, yeah. sometimes they can't live up to the ideal of them. And we are far surpassing the ideal of us. So we're actually really bright and funny and gross and and capable. And and we have a ridiculous tolerance for pain. Um, So, yeah, understanding that actually I'm not what everyone told me that I was. I'm not weak. And and and, And I might be damaged, but I'm not completely broken. And I've just been labelled in all these different ways that actually don't speak to who I am whatsoever. And, and it's just affirmed me with confidence and made me want to instill that confidence in other people that you think you won't make it through, but you almost always do. Oh, my gosh. It's so wonderful to listen to you. Well, thanks. No, it really is. Thank you. I hope that I'm saying that and I hope that you can feel that and... Somewhere in my robot brain. Yeah, okay. I'm just double checking me. on that because, uh, <laughs> um, because it really is. Well, no, I mean, we were saying just before the podcast that I, you know, I don't have any schooling uh, beyond the age of about 16 and a half. I'm going to throw in and a half in there. Uh, so, you know, this has not come from reading as much as it's come from just sort of just scrapping my way through and listening and putting down my pride and being willing to understand when I've made a mistake and just you know being open to change. I think that is one of the deciding factors for me that has allowed me to survive which is you know, I too left school at 14. Mm-hmm. I was in juvie. I don't have a GED. I've had a life filled with trauma and, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of stuff too. And I often look at other people who have had a similar trajectory to me and I've thought, why am I still here? What has differentiated me between me and other people I know who are dead? 
mm-hmm. um, who didn't get sober or who didn't get the help that I, I have gotten. And I realized that it, it is that deciding factor of being open to change mm-hmm. and being willing to ask for help. And that is the difference because no matter how awful it's ever been, there's something in me that is like, this is not going to be the thing that takes me out. I think something I have that's terribly un-British is that I, I do not possess a fear of failure and I never have. And I think that's yeah, been truly the that thing either. that sets me apart from some other people is that I consider I consider trying to be the most noble thing in the world. Almost in particular, if you think you don't have a chance, I think trying is not a sign of madness. I think it's a sign of tremendous courage. And um, we instill such a fear of failure that people not only don't try for their dreams, but they don't even try to get better in case they fail. They don't. They just sort of sink within their problems because they're scared of looking like they made an effort and it didn't go well. But also if you come, I relate to that, Mm. but also if you come, if you've had an experience that has been as horrendous as many people's childhoods Mm -hmm. have been, and it sounds like yours was and certainly aspects of mine, anything is better than that. So when you face that and you've lived with that, it's Mm -hmm. like, what the fuck am I going to lose? I'm not no, going for sure. Know. So I think it's I think when you come from that yeah. a deficit, you know, trying is like, well, what, you know, it can't be worse yeah. than that. Yeah, like I mean it really just that that truly is like a big part of my perspective is just I mean they can't my dad always used to say to me when I was younger, they're not going to take you out into the street and shoot you. I mean in some countries they still do that um obviously, but um in the country in which I grew up, uh, it's true like I'm the world isn't going to end. Do you speak to your dad now? No. I don't speak to anyone. What about your mum? No. I speak to my uh, brother. But I, can't, I have to, you know, I, I believe I've kind of built a family out of my friends. I don't talk to cousins. I don't talk to other siblings. I, I've just sort of uh, removed myself in a very, uh, in a, well, a big act of self-preservation. I think I'm of more use to more people as long as I'm not running on an empty tank. And certain people in my life, friends or family, they empty my tank. And so I've decided that I don't owe anyone my time unless they are worth it. And it's not to disrespect my friends or family, you know, in an explicit way. But some people are just, they just don't work, you know, with you. And that's and that, you know, it's it's ridiculous to think that just because you are related to someone by blood that you have to um, tolerate this incompatibility between the two of you. You know, it's just family just doesn't family is a is is not something that is determined by genetics. Family is determined by behavior. It's very liberating to know that you don't have to take shit from anyone. No. Ever. You just don't have to do anything. You actually just don't have to do anything. I didn't brush my teeth today. I don't have to. I'm sorry about that, though, because you're sitting closer than I I thought you would. I didn't didn't clean mine either. (laughs) And neither Um, have I got deodorant on, and I really stink. Great. Well, we deserve each other. That's why we can't smell each other, because we stink (laughs) so badly. Yeah, I just don't have to talk to anyone. I have practiced in the last four or five years. uh, The only elimination diet that I do is the one of eliminating toxicity from my life. And that doesn't Radical come in the form self-care. of yeah. It doesn't come in the form of like carbs. You know, it comes in the form of people who trigger me and do not respect me. And I'm very forthcoming. I'm not someone who wants people expects people to guess what I need. I'm very forthcoming with my needs, um, like a baby. And I uh, just tell people what it is that they're doing that is making me feel a certain way. And um, I think it was Marshall Rosenberg who I think I learned that from. Are you familiar with him? No, I'm not. He teaches the concept of nonviolent communication. 
and which is like you know a, a simple example of that would just be that rather than pointing at someone and telling them what they're doing wrong you just tell them how they are making you feel which like turns it back I around feel, onto you yes, it's, it's and ownership so, responsibility for your feeling and not blaming them yeah so that you're not putting up their defense mechanism and I think I you know I've really learned a lot from that and that's how I communicate with people and I think it's it's very important to extend someone the courtesy of telling them before you just cut them out how they're making you feel and offer them an opportunity to change and, and become more compatible with you and more respectful of you but if they're not willing to do that then that's a very clear simple sign that therefore that relationship has to come to an end abruptly until something has shifted so um can you give me an example of something that is just a no-go for you in a friendship I cannot cope with insincerity. People who lie to me, I just can't cope with it. I have such a difficulty in trusting people that I can't handle people who lie. Um, I'm not interested in it, and and insincere people freak me out. And and they're probably being insecure. Sorry, they're probably being insincere because of their own, you know, reasons or traumas or whatever. But I cannot be near that because it makes me feel like, you know, I. I think I will always have a slight sense that something terrible is around the corner or someone's about to switch on me. You know, I was surrounded by a lot of bipolar people when I was younger and I think that also had a profound effect on my fear of change and I'm very bad with surprises and very bad with spontaneity. I'm, you like you know, predictability. I'm, yeah, I'm gunsha, you know, yeah, and sure. so and a proper shadow boxer. And um, my my all of my friends, one of the running themes throughout them is that they're all just the most sincere, honest people I've ever met. And they tell me things that I'm perhaps not ready to hear. Uh, and they are themselves with me and therefore I can trust them. But that is something that is a must. Um, I relate to that. I'm exactly the same way. I don't know what to do with people when they're not honest because I can see that they're not yeah. being sincere. And I just don't know how to relate to them mm -hmm. unless it's from a place of truth. Mm -hmm. It it makes it difficult to navigate the world and uh, at times because the majority of people do not operate like that. And so certainly in a work situation, mm -hmm. I'm curious how you navigate dealing with people who are not living in their true selves. I just confront people. I just confront people all the time. I love confronting people. I never used to, but now that once you start, it's addictive. It's fantastic. Oh my God, it's like the word no. Once you start using it, you're just like, no, 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 no. And no like is a just, complete sentence. It's, it's, yeah. You've developed no Tourette's and yeah. it's brilliant and it's so excellent uh, to, to pick up on that new skill of saying no. And it's the same with confronting people. Once you register, because, you know, I, I think a large portion of depression is caused by repression yes and I think that theory is backed by a lot of mental health care professionals turned inwards. and so when I uh when I hold back my thoughts and feelings I suffer because of someone else's behavior that's just bad maths it is they should suffer yes. if they've upset me but and they, they should feel awkward like I'm not tiptoeing around someone else I'm exhausted from tiptoeing my feet are broken so now I'm just going you. to get I just get in everyone's faces and I do it in a careful way I I am uh, I am kind at first and open to human connection but uh, I I can't let anything slip I don't let anything slide like I have to just I have to say it when I see it and how is it received it's very varied um, I people a lot of people find me jarring and weird but that's their fucking problem and they don't have to be friends with me so that's fine um i definitely want to be friends with ah, that's very kind <laughs> <laughs> it's uh not but not everyone does like a lot of people aren't accustomed to it and so they just they feel very invaded by it but i uh i'm, I'm really just not interested in in any bullshit and any false pretenses and i have I really just don't have the time for it. 
and I've just been through too much and I'm not going to now like kind of decode people. I'm not interested in that. I'm not a hacker, you know, like I just want everyone just to be honest and straightforward. And if we were, we would all be much more mentally well and happier and funnier and better in bed probably. Just generally, it's just, it's across the board. It helps to be an honest person. It really does. Okay. I'm quite so honest in bed as well. Are you? Yeah, I are can't do reverse cowgirl. I'm just not going to try. Why not? I'm knackered. Yeah, you know, my thighs are weak. I've got three bounces in me before I'm flat. That's it. I'm done. I'm out. I don't even bother with that. I'm married for 18 years. It's like, <laughs> all right, listen, what's the easiest way to get this done? Yeah, but also if someone isn't kissing you in a way that you like, you should offer them the opportunity to tell them, be like, oh, I, could we try kissing like this? And if they don't want to, they don't have to. Something that's brilliant through all my work of, in consent, because I'd love to talk to young people about consent and just sort of get remove the stigma and taboo around it um, I, I made a documentary around consent and uh, I got to meet with members of the BDSM community who until that documentary I'd really frowned upon and looked down they're upon they're the only people that have like, clear language around truly consent. they are the yeah, smartest and are. safest space within the whole of sex yeah. and they have like menus of, mm -hmm. of stuff where it's like I eat poo or mm -hmm. I you know like want yogurt shoved up my vagina anything but these people they have these menus these very very detailed menus that they are unapologetic about and they send these menus to each other and if someone goes down that list and says oh you know what those aren't actually the things that I'm into so I'm not going to meet up with you and we're not going to fumble through an awkward sexual encounter that is chemistry free where everyone wants something different they just don't waste time no one gets really hurt without their own consent without literally wanting to be hurt it's just it's inspiring it's a clear road yeah map. we all need that menu I think we don't even know our own menus like we, we don't. don't even write our own list of what we actually like we sort of mesh with whoever we're with and like yeah I well women that. tend to do that women tend to yeah. adapt to whatever partner they're with just yeah. to you know not be problematic Placate. and go yeah. with whatever that person wants but I also yeah. think giving voice to uh to sexual dialogue and to have a dialogue a communication mm -hmm. about what you like and what doesn't is not something that is taught to kids giving words and making making those dialogues common practice mm -hmm. is something that I think young kids need to have so that when they get into the situation it's not awkward they've said it and they've said it t hundreds of times already in fact here's a weird thing oh I don't think it's weird but a lot of my friends think this is really weird when my kids were about four or five years old in America they have fire drills in schools or mm -hmm. they have unfortunately shooter live shooter drills now Jesus. in schools yeah. for little kids all kids and when my kids were about five years old I started doing this exercise with them about what do you do if somebody tries to touch your vagina or your mm -hmm. penis or asks you to touch theirs or shows you their vagina or their penis? What do you do? And I, bas and I basically said, they say, no, stop it and run away. You scream loud and you run and you find someone else or you just run. And I would do this drill with them so that they knew the words. Mm -hmm. And my husband was like, this is so intense. Just because you've had sexual assault as a child, it doesn't mean that you need to instill fear in them. But you know, this exists in the UK. Sex really? education. Yeah, that's part of my documentary. No, they, sex education starts at five in the United Kingdom now. They teach all the kids to stand up and say, you can't touch me here. You can't touch me here. Pointing at the mouth and I at the chest so happy and at the front and at the back. And, and because just a child knowing that it is uh, 
it is not okay to touch them in these places will protect them from most child molesters because they aren't able to groom that child because yes. that child is already informed. Correct. To not inform them leaves them entirely vulnerable. Uh, yeah, entirely yeah. vulnerable. They're not armed with any kind of information and therefore can be tricked into thinking what is happening to it's them okay. is normal, which but, is definitely what happened to me. I didn't have the language. I didn't know what was happening to me was so wrong. It just felt wrong. Mm -hmm. But I was told by people older than me that it was fine. I think they'll have a better run of things than we did, but, you know, the planet will be destroyed by then. So, so oh, well. God help us all. Zach said we'll be in a better education, <laughs> yeah. but the planet, not yeah, so much. but we'll all be underwater. Um, but and it, hopefully it is... we'll still have some, some uh, women's reproductive rights in play because yeah. that that is, I'm, uh. I'm waking up in the night with, not a lot wakes me up in the night because I really love to sleep, but I have to say that this... Um, the 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 amount of states that are trying to enforce abortion bans at this mm -hmm. point is horrific, and I cannot believe in 2000 and almost 20 that we're here mm -hmm. and we're uh, moving backwards. We are moving backwards. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm currently on the front page of Breitbart, so I've made it um, because I said that my abortion was the best decision I've ever made. Really, cutting bangs was the best decision I've ever made. <laughs> After that, it was my abortion. Um, because this has really been my trademark look. Um, but after that, it was the abortion I had. Because uh, I wasn't ready. And, and you know, a lot of the people who did, in fact, there weren't that many people who came out and spoke. And a lot of people who did talk about it only talked about, I think you probably noticed this as well, only talked about it in the case of like, the baby was going to be sick or my life was in danger or I was 12 or this, that and the other. And that's also a valid and important sure. side of abortion. But we didn't have anyone just saying, we didn't have many people just saying, oh, I just did it because I wasn't ready. That should be okay. It's well, very it must important. be okay because it's a, a very common experience. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and I have a lot of friends who've made that decision and looking at where their lives were in that time, that would have been an unbelievably toxic situation for a child to grow up in. And yes, foster care homes do exist and there are people who foster kids and, and thank God for people like that. But not all of those places are suitable for the child. It's all pro-birth. It's not pro-life. Like They don't care about you once you're out the womb. You're on your own. I was speaking with my son who is 12 and he, I was telling him um, about the abortion bans and I told him that I had had an abortion. Actually, I've had more than one abortion. Mm -hmm. um, and he said, he, he, he really couldn't get his head around it. He said, what do you mean? Why would you do that? And I said, well, and I explained to him why I chose to do that. And it was actually with his dad. And I said, why don't you talk to dad about it as well? Because actually dad was part of that choice. Mm -hmm. We made that choice together. Mm -hmm. It wasn't just me making that choice. Even if it was, that would have been fine. But dad made that choice with me. Yeah. And it's not just women who should be shouldering this responsibility. Yeah. And I said to my husband, I said, you know what? You're a guy. You have a platform. You should be speaking up, to be honest, mm -hmm. and supporting women who are speaking up because a lot of the time women aren't making this choice in a vacuum. This is affecting all of us. So why do you think that abortion is still so stigmatized? It's one of the great, the latest, uh, the, one of the last great stigmatized, um, you know, choices to make. Well, I mean, uh, there's so many, there's such a huge 
plethora of reasons. I mean, the first and foremost is that to to make sure that we are in situations where we are afraid of sex is one of them. I think where we are forced to uh, go through these very, these huge emotional and physical upheavals and therefore being kind of maybe kept at home to have to look after a baby or being a single mother or being a teen mother means that we are being disempowered, unable to continue our education or our careers for a while. It's just continuously derailing us in little ways by having forcing us to have babies that we are not uh, ready for or we don't want um, and then also there's and you know I'm I'm I can't stress enough how distressing it is that these places are all happening where there is a predominantly African-American or a lot of the African-Americans in America live in these places and so this is a way of also holding them back and discriminating against them knowing they won't have the money because rich white people will be able to find ways to leave the state and find access to doctors but young black girls and black boys aren't going to be able to do that and then it's also a way of then forcing people into situations financially where they might have to do things that are illegal in order to access so it's not only a way of like making sure that if a young black girl uh, is to get an abortion and then she has to go to jail because she's had the abortion therefore they've got someone else within the prison system who can uh, basically work for free because the whole system is built on slavery but also the fact that then those people are going to have children that are going to grow up perhaps impoverished because they weren't financially ready to have that child and that child might get into crime and therefore they've got more black people they can put into the fucking jails to make our trainers and our t-shirts for free. I'm really happy that you brought this up and that you make you are speaking about the connection between racism and reproductive yeah. rights because this is a story that not many people are talking about. You know, I think that's that part. That's part of the motivation. I think structurally, it comes from a really racist place where they're hoping that black people will be and African American people will be more impoverished, and more of them are going to go into this incredibly, incredibly insidious and terrifying prison system. Which is, again, once I educated myself on the way the prison systems are set up in America, it's the most racist infrastructure I've heard of in a very long time unbelievable Mm -hmm. unbelievable and it's not the kind of thing that i knew for many many years Mm -hmm. um no we didn't hear about it in england i came over here having no idea and i thought like you know oh i have an affinity with all african-american women or all asian people or all everyone because we're all brown so we're all up against it and i was beaten up for racist reasons so therefore i i hear you i get you i had no idea I have no concept of the suffering of African-American people in this country. And I and I made the mistake of kind of trying to like affiliate myself or I would say POC rather than separating people of colour and African-American people sure. or black people. I didn't know that you had to do this because it is a whole different experience. And so that's been a big L that I've taken in just making sure that I educate myself about different marginalised groups, different minorities, people with different disabilities or whatnot. I have a lot to learn still and I'm going to make mistakes. I'm going to have ignorance here and there. But I think my journey to progression and the fact that I'm willing to learn publicly and use my mistakes as a tool for education for other people has been something that I feel good about in my career and the fact that I'm willing to put my hand up and say I don't have all of the answers but I'm trying to get them as quickly as possible here you can learn alongside me you talked about the fact that Mm -hmm. you're proud of the fact that you hold up your hand and you say I have a lot to learn Mm -hmm. I don't know everything Um, how do you feel about when people do hold up their hand and say I'm sorry wasn't aware of that I have a lot to learn Mm -hmm. and they get completely annihilated for not knowing everything because I see that a lot yeah and it pains me 
Well, it just sort of stems from moral superiority. I just don't think it's helpful. I think it's a ridiculous thing to do. It also devalues and demotivates progress. Um, and so people, why would they bother getting better if they're just going to be forever punished for their previous sin? Um, I think that as long as someone is genuinely making uh, a, a willing effort to get better and to do better, then we should welcome them in because we need as many allies as we can. If we're going to kill off everyone who's been problematic or ignorant, we're going to lose most of the world. We're all learning. We're all updating. There's new information coming in all of the time. Look how much I've learned. Look how problematic I used to be versus what I am now and how much good I'm able to do with that. Thank God I wasn't just cancelled and cast off because I have evolved and that means other people can too. Wonderful. That's why I refer to myself always as a feminist in progress. I'm not here for moral superiority. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> Fuck, I feel like there's so much more I want to talk to you about. But there you go. Yeah, Time's we'll do it up. over a tea. Let's do it over a tea. Thank you so much, Jamila. Thanks for having me. The Conversation with Amanda Decadney is a Spotify original podcast. Executive produced by me, Amanda Decadney. From Spotify, our executive producers are Natalie Tuller and Erica Clark. Our production partner is Neon Hum, which includes the team of Jonathan Hirsch, Catherine St. Louis, Courtney Kosak, and Marissa Schneiderman. And while I've got your attention, please listen to all episodes of The Conversation with Amanda Decadney on Spotify for free.